Our Father, we are uh, again so amazed, really. We stand amazed uh, to consider the wonders of your grace and love in sending forth your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, to uh, take upon himself um, human flesh, uh, although without sin, of course, but to take upon himself human flesh and then ultimately to suffer the shame of the cross and the full burdens of that, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. Father, thank you that he paid the penalty fully for the sins of humanity, uh, indeed, uh, of the whole world. Thank you for his love that was so incomprehensibly great uh, that he would do this for us. Father, I, I, I thank you so much for, by the word of your grace, calling us uh, into saving faith and uh, for the benefits of that, the glorious benefits of that. Uh, our Savior has been resurrected gloriously, and we may even share in his resurrection power, as we're going to consider today uh, through these scriptures that have been given to us uh, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Father, please bless us as we open your word today greatly. Father, I, I have in my mind so many uh, of your dear saints and their needs, which are many. And, uh, and yet, Father, there are even more thanksgivings going forth from your people than the needs that are expressed. And so we're so thankful for that, that we are called to thank you for all things, and we do that so willingly. Father, I, I pray for our nation, our president, uh, our nation's in a crisis indeed, Father, and uh, has been, but much of it has been covered up by other things often, but now it's so visible, so clear. So, Father, I pray that as the lines are drawn, and uh, sides are chosen in what really is a, a battle for the soul of our nation and our people, Father. I pray for those that stand on the right side. I pray for those uh, that don't, that they, they would understand the error of their ways, their error which is so great and so visible. Father, I, I pray for our, our president that you give him much wisdom to lead this nation in these troubled times and that you'd encourage him and those that serve with him. There are many other needs, uh, of course, and uh, we pray the same for ourselves, Father, and as we open your word, uh, we just look there now and we pray it will be with your blessing and that blessing would be great. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're continuing today, and uh, the subject is such a great one, and, and, and so far, in some ways, beyond our comprehension, that every time I look at these verses, I, I feel like we're just beginning, right? We're just barely beginning. The word always seems fresh to me. It seems like maybe I've missed the whole point of it here and uh, need to dwell here more and more just to know uh, where it all starts and where it will end, right? Is what Paul writes about is, is so, so heavenly, this teaching in Philippians. I, I'm sure you found it that way as we are already now and down in chapter 3 uh, of, of uh, this great, great letter to the uh, believers in Philippi. Uh, we've constantly been reminded here of what Paul calls the mind of Christ. Remember in chapter 2, verse 5, he, he gave this exhortation, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's so much talk of becoming like Jesus today in the churches. And without that much thought, uh, what that might really mean uh, and uh, Paul writes of it here in, in the, the way that he so loves to do, right? He, 
he sort of gets to the heart of the matter. He says, the mind of Christ is definitely something to be considered, but it's not a matter uh, so much of what would Christ do in this situation, if only we could know that, uh, practically speaking. But what was his mind like? How was he thinking even in eternity <laughs> before the incarnation? And that's really, uh, we saw that that's what Paul was uh, writing about there back in Philippians chapter 2. And yet he says, we also as believers may have the same mindset. We may have the same mode of thinking Christ had back then. And he exhorts us to have it, right? What is that mindset? Well... He was willing to give up so much, wasn't he, to take upon uh, himself human flesh and ultimately the sins of the world, right? He was willing to give up so much of what was rightfully his. And we're going to learn today a little more about what that was all about because Paul gives more uh, information about that. He gives another description of it in his letter to the Hebrews. I want us to look at that momentarily here. But uh, what I'd like to say is simply that this is very practical uh, teaching here in his letter to the Philippians. It's very practical. It relates to where we all are right now as believers. And several examples have been set forth for us. First of all, Christ, you know, what his way of thinking was in heaven's glory before taking upon himself the incarnation, right? Uh, But um, then also Paul's example, his testimony, his witness, and also the witness of Timothy and Epaphroditus. They all had given up so much. Uh, And in the case of these three, they'd given up so much for the sake of their Lord Jesus, right? They'd given it up for him. In other words, they'd given it up uh, for the sake of Christ and his work, right? And Paul's focused very much on the work of Christ uh, in this section before us today. Uh, he himself gave up so much, he, and, and the question would be, well, how much did he really give up? He makes a list there. We saw there were seven, seven areas that he had given over to the Lord, um, and uh, I'm not going to go through that whole list now, and we've done that in detail before here. But he uses words which I think ring very uh, powerfully in our hearts if we just would uh, consider them. And those are the words confidence in the flesh. He said he had no confidence in the flesh. Doesn't that seem uh, to be way beyond our understanding? I mean, we we all live in a world uh, and in circumstances where the confidence that we have in the flesh is very well known. It's very uh, real, right? Uh, It's easily possible to go through an entire day surrounded by worldly things that just come upon us uh, escaping from them seems impossible often and the confidence that we have in our own capabilities in our own selves becomes a very large thing in our lives and that's just common that's that is a common demand we could say right <laughs> that is the way it is uh, but paul says just sort of in an absolute sense, he says, I have learned to have no confidence in the flesh. And he's not saying that as the great apostle to the Gentiles only, as if somehow he's in a different realm than we're in, right? He, he's exhorting all of us to have the same. Uh, no confidence in the flesh. And He's going to uh, go into some details about that here in the passage we're looking at again today. And that's, we looked at it um, before, verses 8 through 11 in uh, Philippians chapter 3. But um, for, for Paul to say he didn't have confidence in the flesh means he's given so much up that he's now, as it were, 
fine-tuned in how God wants to work in his life, right? I mean, that that's his focus, and he can say that in such strong language as he did there, right? He could honestly say it. He had no confidence in the flesh. It's kind of a general statement. It's not specific. He would be happy to give specifics, wouldn't he? He already gave some earlier here in the letter, right? He could give more. He could he could talk um, 24-7 about it, I'm sure, right? But it certainly highlights where we all stand today, uh, often surrounded by matters that demand our attention and uh, that have nothing to do with directly at least, nothing, or so it seems, we'd be wrong there in thinking such, but thinking that these things of life have nothing to do with the Lord when, of course, they have very much to do with the Lord, don't they? He's working uh, in our lives all things together for our good, so that's to be kept in mind here. But knowing how much Paul gave up is uh, going to help us understand what he means when he says he has no longer any confidence in the flesh. Um, well, how much did he give up? Well, Philippians 3, 8 tells us how much. Um, and, and what this all comes down to, the bottom line is, he says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, or by even refuse. Uh, uh, Lewis pointed out how this word was used for that, which was thrown to the dogs, basically, that which was useless, humanly speaking, thrown to the dogs, right? He counts everything, he says that, that he may win Christ. And I consider this this verse and the ones explaining it that follow to be some of the most profound statements uh, anywhere found in the entire word of God, at least as relates to believers themselves, right? He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dunk that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but of the, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We'll be back here again next week to consider the last part of uh, verse 10, where he says, well, it's really in the middle, but because uh, I'm going to consider the last and the first part of verse 10 today. But in the middle, he says, that I may know him, the power, power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings we'll look at next time, Lord willing. Uh, I think that really is a subject that we always uh, should feel like uh, we're just beginning to comprehend its full meaning, right? The fellowship of his sufferings. Well, today, though, what I want to consider is the first part of verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection and then that last part being made conformable unto his <laughs> death. Um, what does it all mean? Uh, so Christ's resurrection power was at work in Paul, and he wanted to know even and experience even more of it. And he never wanted to reach the end of that, experiencing even more of the resurrection power of Christ. That was his goal in life. And uh, there, there are five things here I'd like to look at. First of all, concerning that resurrection power that was at work in Paul. First of all, its demand, its demand, and this is all in reference to Paul, but 
surely it can be applied to us. Its demand was great sacrifice, great sacrifice. Secondly, uh, we will see here in these verses and in others we'll look at its clear reality. Okay, so that the resurrection power of, was at work in Paul should have been clear to everyone, to everyone. And we'll see evidences of that as we read on today. Thirdly, the purity of motive that it demanded. So, you know, when, when Christ's resurrection power is at work in us, it demands purity in our motives. Uh, it does not, it is not compatible. That working of God in us is not compatible with impurity uh, in our intentions and desires and so forth. It requires purity of motive in every aspect. Thirdly, that resurrection power at work in Paul and also us requires the renun renunciation of self. The renunciation of self must be self must be set aside. Self-interest must be set aside for the sake of Christ's work in us. And and finally, that resurrection power, when it is at work in us, will be shared with others. It cannot be otherwise. It will be shared with others. And the reason is, it's the power of God <laughs> at work doing that sharing. So we've got the demand of this work of God in us, this resurrection power in us, its reality is clearly displayed. It requires a purity in motives. It demands renunciation of self, and it will be shared inevitably with others. Now, this is glorious. He, he uses the word glory in reference to it in many places. And so let's proceed with that and just see uh, where he leads us today. So this is mostly in verse 10 of uh, Philippians chapter 3. First of all, the demand was great sacrifice. Now we're talking about how Christ's resurrected power works in Paul and in us. Well, you don't have resurrection except after death, right? First, the suffering, then the glory, right? Remember, that's the principle. We talked about that before. It always has to go in that order. It can't go in any other order. For Christ himself, it went in that order. First, the suffering, even the suffering, even the death on the cross, right? Then the glory, right? Then the resurrection was after the suffering. It's that way in Paul's life, he says, and he gives us many evidences of that. And it must be that way also in our lives. Okay? And so he says he has suffered the loss of all things. Okay? How much did he lose? He says, I lost everything. Now, you might respond to what's written here with, well, really, that can have nothing to do with me because I, I'm certainly not in that situation. That's absolutely unattainable, right? I live in this world, and I need to be uh, uh, responsive to its demands, right? That That's sort of how we normally think about our lives, right? And, and what Paul is, was saying here is that to the extent we think like that, right, in other words, to the extent we're thinking that these these demands on us uh, determine our lives, they're they are, they are controlling influences, therefore. And that's just the way it is. There's no way out of this, right? To the extent we think that way, we're going to be going aside or astray from what God wants to work out through us. Okay, that that's the basic point here. Paul is setting forth himself as our example, right? I mean, many might even say, well, Paul has no right to do this, right? Except to boast in himself. Well, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing, he is boasting, absolutely, that he's boasting in the glorious empowering of God being poured out in and through him. Self. Okay, so it's not his works ever. He's given all that over to the Lord. It's the work of the Lord in and through him. That's what he's writing about here. Okay. Um, 
So that's that's where we start here. Uh, the the sacrifice <laughs> uh, required uh, for us to be, you might say, in sync with or in tune with the work of God under grace in our lives. That that sacrifice is that great. Paul says all things, and uh, that's why I say every time we come to these verses, we, we're like starting from scratch because. Uh, Yes, it's spiritual food for our souls, but, uh, you know, we have to receive it or it's not going to be of any benefit, right? And what Paul is saying here is that just look at my example. I'm telling you, this is a reality for me, and it may be for you too. And that's the bottom line. Examples are powerful. The witness, the testimony of someone who knows is valuable, not only in a court of law, but here, right here in this letter to the Philippians, right? Uh, now, I, I would submit to you that um, most uh, of what we hear in the churches is, is really off track from this because uh, most of it is about religion and works, I'm very sorry to say, and not that much about uh, faith in what has been revealed, what God has already accomplished through Christ. It's so great. And what he therefore is uh, blessing us with, if only we were willing to live it out, right? He is pouring his grace out into us, and that's supposed to make all the difference in the world. And if it doesn't, then we've missed uh, out on the work of God in our day, right? Um, that's sort of the bottom line here. Now, in in verse <laughs> verse nine, I, I I have to point this out to you. In fact, we could spend the whole time on it if we wished. Um, in verse nine of chapter three, he says, "And be found in Him." These are the next words after what we just read. Be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. To be found in him. It's interesting language. It's kind of like you're, you're, um, you're examining, maybe in the uh, chemistry lab, lab with the Bunsen burner, right? <laughs> you're searching. Am I going to find any impurities here, right? You know, remember the old test uh, in uh, <clears throat> sophomore chemistry, right? Um, with the Bunsen burner, let's test the purity of some things here by seeing what happens when we put them into the fire, right? Um, do we find, do we discover, in other words, any impurities there? And, and, and that's what Paul is writing about here. He's surely thinking of the coming what's called what he calls the judgment seat of Christ, right? Where our, we will be examined, our lives will be examined, and what will be left after the judgment seat is only that which is pure, that which was truly founded on Christ uh, and his completed work on our behalf, right? Everything else will be burned up, right? So all the works will be burned except for uh, the life which was founded on him, right? And and so everything will be discovered at that time. So I think that's what he's referring to here. Uh, his desire, his heart's desire, the great desire of his life is that these things that were regarding his own personal righteousness won't be found <laughs> there in that examination, right? There'll be no discovery there of that. He says, not having mine own righteousness and then he adds which is of the law and i, I think that's uh that's a statement that uh, that we could spend the whole time on easily the point of it and i have gained great conviction regarding this uh over the years but especially especially just recently in my uh, preparations for sunday morning because I, I think when he adds those words there, which is of the law, my known righteousness, which is of the law, 
think of the context, right? Don't take it out of the context uh, that it's in here. Remember the context? Uh, Paul had listed his own uh, virtues, right? <laughs> Which were all uh, as defined in the law and how that had been interpreted by the Pharisees. He was not only a Pharisee, but he was even a member of the Sanhedrin there uh, in the Jewish religious system, right? And he was, remember, he said, I was blameless. Well, meaning according to that, that system, right? That system was based uh, in certain ways upon Moses' law, right? I mean, they'd gone beyond Moses' law for sure, right? But, but, but to some degree, it was based on Moses' law. And what he's saying here is that if I measure up myself continuously according to a law, even if it's not Moses' law, it may only be my own, but you know, I, I will always not only fall short, but I will be focused on my own righteousness and not on that which is as he says here through the faith of christ the righteousness which is of god by faith that's an entirely separate thing okay so wow to be found not having your own righteousness what could be a greater goal than that right well let's go on um so that that paul demonstrated all of this in his life should have been clear to all, and I think it was to all except the false teachers, of course, who were unwilling to accept any of it, right? And they were continuously plaguing Paul in his ministry. Um, so let's look at uh, some scripture uh, regarding this. I think we read it last time, but we didn't talk about it much. And, and uh, I'd like um Linda to read it for us and this will sort of get us getting get us started in seeing clearly how the resurrection power of the Lord was in fact in work in, in at work in Paul the resurrection power of Christ was at work in Paul and it was clearly seen it was reality okay it's very important, of course, that that be true. Otherwise, this testimony is false, right? Okay, so, Linda, please read for us there, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Christ's sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Thank you, Linda. So <clears throat> here's a very strong statement. It goes on and on for all these verses, right? Anyone who knew Paul could have said, Paul, you're living a lie. <laughs> we know this isn't true of you, right? Think of this. Do you know anyone who's ever given a testimony like this? <laughs> you don't, right? Of course not. Because no one that we know could give this testimony or could or perhaps they could hmm interesting huh clearly paul is not setting himself uh, out as the only person in the world who could give this testimony in fact he's exhorting the believers to have the same testimony right okay so he was not the only one but what he's saying is that it should be clear to all that this is truly my testimony. In other words, this is the work of God, and you see it here, okay? You see it here, and I'm writing about it, uh, that you might understand this even more clearly, right? What the essence of it is. <clears throat> so what was the essence of Paul's life? He says in verses 10 and 11, always 
bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. In other words, where it can be seen, right? Where the life of Jesus can be seen in our body. For we which live, and there's a plural, and I don't think it's just in the regal sense, you know, ours or we or something like king speak, but we meaning all of us who truly live are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So the suffering and then the glory, right? So you're delivered unto death that the resurrection life of Christ that you possess may be lived out and seen by others. That's what he's saying here. That's just an amazing statement, okay, isn't it? And uh, the question might then be, well, why would anyone choose to live like this, always delivered unto death? I mean, who wants this, right? The answer to that question is coming up next. Okay, I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 12 for that. Ah, my. Oh, it, it is uh, powerful indeed to reconsider these verses, isn't it? Remember, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Okay, He's not talking about simply how Christ was raised from the dead physically, right? He's talking about him as, as, as he wrote also in another place in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 45, where he said, when Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised as a life-giving spirit. Okay? And that life has been shed abroad in our hearts with us, okay? With us believers. So we have the resurrected life of Christ. He calls that newness of life in Romans chapter 6, and and he describes it in many other ways too, right? Okay, so the power of his resurrection, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, he says, is operable now in us. That's the bottom line here, okay? Okay, let's go ahead, because he's going to talk about the motivation now and the purity of it uh, that I mentioned before. Okay, so uh, to, to see that, we need to look, uh, I think, in another place, or at least the, maybe the best place to look for it would be in addition to Philippians 2, where we already considered this, but now in Hebrews chapter 12. So, Roy, I'd like you to read for us uh, concerning uh, Christ himself as our example in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Roy. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which do easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, as set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you, Roy. <clears throat> it says here how this all happened. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, in the incarnation, lived uh, as a man, uh, although without sin, of course, but then it was delivered over to the cross. And it says here, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God in resurrection glory, right? So Christ, he says, endured the cross. He endured it, right? Despising the shame. Um, he may have often wondered, I mean, I certainly did every time I read this, I think I thought, whoa, wait, what is this word despising here for? Okay, what does this mean, really? He despised the shame associated with the cross. And I, I think what it means is really kind of simple indeed, really, if you consider what the cross was, 
it was the great uh, mark of shame, right? Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon the cross, and, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, under Moses' law that is written, right? Um, the 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 curse of uh, of that is uh, a real thing, right? And Christ Himself was very very well aware of that. And of course, having the sins of, of humanity poured upon him, right while he was there, uh, made it uh, something far beyond our understanding. We simply have to take it by faith, right? Uh, as it stated, our sins were placed upon him. He bore the penalty for them, for every one of them. He suffered uh, for them in our place, so that we would not suffer. The consequence of our sins, right? So he despised the shame of it. In other words, he cast it <clears throat> completely out of his mind. Because if he hadn't, he would have withdrawn. He would have withdrawn from it. He he would never have been willing to endure it, right? But it says here he was willing to endure it, and it sa he says it was for the joy set before him. Now, I could ask you the question, what joy is that? <laughs> and you might not be able to give me the answer, except the obvious, right? Which is that, well, there would be resurrection, right? He, he, he knew this. That was part of the plan, right? There would be resurrection. But I think it's more, far more than this, really. And we're going to learn of that from Patty's reading of Ephesians chapter 1. In verses uh, two through six, where uh, what, what we what we um, what we see is uh, what Christ looked forward to, okay? Uh, and he gives the details of it here very clearly in Ephesians chapter one, verses two through six. Patty, would you read that for us, please? Grace be to you and peace from God our Father. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, th there's uh, a constant theme repeated over and over in those few verses that you could quickly read this and and miss unless you just stop to dwell on it and so i'm asking you to stop and dwell on it now and then later today and then tomorrow and then next week and then forever okay don't ever stop dwelling on it because what what this constant theme is here is that there was something in us that christ wanted and what was that a perfect fellowship okay we are his beloved, okay, and he is ours. This was part of the eternal plan of God. It goes back in the plan, even he says here, before the foundation of the world, right? <laughs> this was part of the plan. So don't think of our redemption as being simply, oh, our sins are forgiven. And that's like the end of the story. Well, it's more there would be a counterpart for the Son of God for all eternity. Okay? That's what, what the plan involved. <laughs> and notice in this section here, he doesn't talk about the forgiveness of sins right here. Okay? I mean, it's certainly necessary to get to the end point, right? But, but notice this is about uh, perfection, holy and without blame before him, right? In love predestinated unto the adoption of children, the placing uh, as sons, right? 
by Jesus Christ to himself. You see that he keeps he keeps bringing the Lord into this to himself, uh, to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, whereas he had made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, uh, we have this perfect grace-based relationship that will go on for all eternity. And this is Christ as the head and we as the members of his body. It's a very, very special relationship. It's intimate, far beyond our understanding, to have perfect fellowship with the Son of God. Just let your mind begin to grasp onto this and see the effect that will have on your life. To see yourself as being so special to God, that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, even before the creation, worked out this plan, right? To present us there in that perfect bond of fellowship and to have that for eternity. Huh. Well, that's what we find here. So uh, we consider the joy set before him. It's, it, it's looking forward to perfect fellowship with you and with me. I just find that overwhelming. I hope you do too. Okay. Okay, let's uh, try to finish up here. Uh, <laughs> there is great renunciation of self, I said, at work here. And uh, and Paul had to learn this. It was not, it was not an easy thing uh, to begin to gain understanding of all of this. He had to go through much, and he writes of it in 2 Corinthians 12. I'd like, Sarah, if you would read for us, just these few verses from Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above all measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you, Sarah. So, so this is what Paul learned in his life. Uh, and he learned it through the Lord bringing trials into his life, you see. Now, uh, yes, he says it was the messenger of Satan in this case, right? Yes, it was. But the Lord allowed Satan to do this in Paul's life to teach him some things that he wouldn't have learned otherwise, okay? And specifically, that the Lord's grace was, in fact, sufficient. That means he didn't need to have these other things. He didn't need to have the thorn in the flesh removed. Even with the thorn in the flesh there, the Lord's grace was sufficient for him. And, and he learned, he says, therefore to rejoice and to glory even in infirmities. I, this is just amazing, isn't it? Notice that he says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay? The power of Christ. The resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he said that his great desire was to know more of that. Well, if it's your desire to know more of the resurrected power of Christ in your life, expect trials and sufferings. They are inevitable, okay? Because uh, the righteousness which is of our own selves must be completely banished from our thinking, right? Just like Paul wrote before. I'm going to close today by reading a couple of verses from 2 Corinthians 13, just after the verses really that Sarah just read. Uh, the Apostle Paul, <laughs> he writes something that I hope you find shocking, because you should. Uh, <clears throat> but in the church at Corinth, there were those seeking to destroy the ministry of grace that Paul had laid a foundation for, okay? And Paul writes this letter concerning them uh, and the dear ones. 
there that he cared so much about. Would they give up on grace altogether and turn to law and human works, human righteousness or not? Would they just become religious or would they stand upon the finished work of Christ? And so in Second Corinthians 13, this is what he writes. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. Being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all others that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, since you are seeking a proof of Christ speaking in me, which toward you isn't weak, but it's mighty, it's powerful, right? For he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Remember, he said, since he seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, there should be no question Christ was speaking in and through Paul. Okay, And he's saying, if I come the second time, you're going to find out about that, right? And then he says this, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know, your, know ye not your own selves, how that Christ Jesus is in you, unless you're reprobates? I trust ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Um, again, one of the strongest <laughs> exhortations found anywhere in Scripture here. And I think that uh, it's a good place to close our study today. Uh, so many today are indeed questioning Christ speaking in Paul. They do that by denying the fullness of God's grace and turning to law and religious works. Okay? He says, don't for a moment consider it. Christ speaking in me, and here it is in the letter, right? And this is the power of God at work, okay? Uh, I, I just find it overwhelming, really, to read the words and to take them as spiritual food. I hope you do, too. Remember, we started this whole section way back uh, about five or six uh, weeks ago by reading in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, it is God with works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay. The point of it all is God is at work in us with resurrection power. Will we live it and enjoy it or short circuit the work of God by turning aside? I pray to the Lord we will receive the spiritual truth with joy and thanksgiving. Well, would you uh, like to make any comments? Or uh, you can always ask questions, but if you'd like to make any comments, now is the time to do that. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer shortly. Hi, Jim. I uh, want to make a quick comment on Philippians 3.9. Yes. And uh, it's in, in the scripture it says, by which is through the faith of Christ. And it's interesting that this is in King James. And uh, which translate pretty faithfully from the uh, original manuscript. But you mm. read the most of the newer translation, they were not using faith of Christ. Mm-hmm. They used faith in Christ, which right. is, <laughs> uh, well, I feel it's a perversion of the scripture. Instead of emphasize uh, on Christ, uh, Christ's uh, faithfulness then they divert the subject into our own faith in Christ, which nowadays has been sort of a fluffy term being preached in the congregation in terms of faith in Christ. What do you mean by faith? <laughs> People don't even believe in the scripture anymore, just believing all the jargon and slogans. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, yeah, it's, it's kind of a large subject as to what the correct translation is. I think we talked about it before, and I, I remember uh, a few years ago, when I, I said that um, the, the structure of the Greek allows uh, either translation, but of course, if you use the word of, 
in some ways, I guess we'd have to say it's a more faithful translation. But the question then is, faith in what sense? Faithfulness. See, in that case, we have to use the word faithfulness, not faith or, you know, because for Christ himself having faith, we have to be able to explain what that means, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit too much to get into today here. But certainly Christ's faithfulness is foundational, isn't it? It's absolutely foundational uh, to everything that, that we are in Christ, right? His faithfulness and his righteousness, which is imputed to our account, just like it says here, the righteousness which is of God by faith. But that last by faith there, that would not be by his faithfulness, but by our personal faith. But um, you're right. Faith is minimized and redefined often in our current day. And it's such a disgraceful thing indeed, isn't it? Any other comments? Anyone? Okay, well, let's uh, thank the Lord. Father God, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you for gathering us and blessing us so greatly. And uh, it's just a most blessed thing to have this word that you've given it through the pen of the Apostle Paul and then preserved it and then provided reliable translations. Uh, all of this, the enemy was out to destroy all of that and prevent it all from ever happening. But, of course, he was uh, uh, defeated in those efforts and so we have this precious word before us today father may it bless our souls and hearts may we see the example that paul offers and the proof that gives of uh, the reality of your work uh, under grace today um, may we ourselves have this uh, resurrection quality of life abounding um, and may your grace, therefore, be displayed through us faithfully. And uh, may there be no question in those around us concerning that. Uh, yes, Father, may, may that be true. And we would ask this in Christ's name. And, and amen. Amen.